Welcome to the Meb Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. These statements represent personal views of Amlon Roy as a global researcher and not those of State Street. Welcome, podcast listeners. We got an awesome show for you today. I met our guest at the Milken Conference over a few glasses of wine. Got to see him talk. He's the head of global macro policy and senior MD at State Street Asset Management Division. He leads the research team there focused on macro, policy, politics, retirement, demographics, all sorts of things, serving internal, external clients in over 30 countries. Prior to that, he served as head of global demographics and pensions MD at Credit Suisse, and prior to that, he's in academia too. Welcome to the show, Dr. Amlan Roy. Thank you, Meb. It's great to be on your show, and please call me Amlan. Amlan. Last time I saw you, you were pacing about a great restaurant in Los Angeles, giving a talk that I loved, so I harassed you for months until you finally agreed to join us on the show, so thank you. I'm excited that you're here, and by the time we're done... We'll probably know who wins the, the Wimbledon match because it's going on concurrently. No, I expect it to be long drawn out for at least two or three hours. And first of all, my apologies. I don't think it was just me, but our schedules and the time zones, all those things interfere too. Where in the world are you right now? London. Oh, you got to go. You should be going to the match. Come on, man. State Street should be paying for that. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to Kenya tomorrow and a very big central bank in Asia is paying for it. Good. Well, look, you you are on the road way more than I am. You probably have some good frequent flyers. I think you give about 30 talks a year. So this will be old hat for you. So Amlan, I was reading one of your old papers or listening to one of your videos and you had a great Peter Drucker quote that, that you mentioned where you said, we do not pay attention to demographics, and when we do, we miss the point. So what do you think about when you're thinking about demographics, and what, do you, what does the world look like you today as you uh, travel around and give talks to all sorts of groups? What's going on in your mind? On demographics, my interpretation of Peter Drucker is that the world is now starting to look at demographics through the kind of lens that I started looking about 20 years ago. To me, demographics is demos people, Graphos characteristics. So the etymology or the word origin of demographics alludes to people characteristics. It nowhere in the definition of the word do we have age, young people, old people. So if you look at the world in terms of people as consumers and workers, I claim consumers and workers affect GDP growth, affect asset prices, affect inflation, affect a bunch of things like geopolitics. And how many consumers are there in the world? There are roughly about 7.9 billion consumers today in the world because everybody in the world who's a person or an individual or a human being, whether it's a baby in San Francisco General Hospital or it's the oldest woman living in Okinawa, Japan, they're consuming different things. And there are a bunch of workers, something like 5.6 billion workers, 
workers make up the GDP of the world and consumers consume the bulk of the GDP in excess of 50% of the GDP of the world. In, in US, it's about 70% of the GDP. In China, it's about 38%. In Japan, it's 64%. And it varies because the consumption share of GDP varies. And a very important point that Peter Drucker alluded to is when we try to look at countries, we should look at differences across countries because not all countries are homogeneous. The share of consumption is not the same across all countries. The share of exports and imports is not the same across all countries. So in Germany today, in the, during the trade wars, Germany is likely to suffer a bit more than countries like US or Japan, which are a bit more insulated, or even countries to some extent like China. So it's important to understand the sources of GDP growth, how are consumers consuming, how are workers working to get a holistic understanding of demographics. Now, where's the world today? I claim that the world today is in a very peculiar spot, which economists have been coming up with lots of narratives, some of them hyped up, some of them a lot of semantics, but many of them uh, not making a lot of sense, such as some people calling it a new normal. I don't think it's a normal in any sense where economic and finance orthodoxy has failed over the last 10, 12 years to come out of a low growth, low inflation, low interest rate world. And we are grappling with these issues, whether it be in Japan or Italy or Germany or US, and expecting monetary policy, which is one hand to deliver what earlier two hands delivered in coordination or synchrony. So think about Muhammad Ali boxing with one hand, whereas he's used to boxing with two hands, or Rafael Nadal, who's used to playing with both hands tennis, just having to play tennis with one hand. So that's a big handicap. Furthermore, one hand is very bruised and overused, and I call that monetary policy. Monetary policy is very ineffective in a world where we are getting very old. So that's so-called synthesis of where I see the world and why has economics failed. I refer to two very, very distinguished economic scholars, and people say economists are arrogant, but these are people who are Nobel laureates and still criticizing the profession, criticizing themselves and people like me, saying that economics has been very narrow-minded, has been too technical, has assumed superpowers in terms of forecasting, but has been found wanting because it ignored behavior, political institutions, trust, confidence, and other things which matter, and communications. So now, Akerlof and Schiller first wrote a book called Animal Spirits, then they wrote a book, Fishing for Fools, where they said it's the narrative which counts. And now Schiller has published another book called Narrative Economics, saying that it's not just how we see things, it's how we narrate things, how the FOMC narrates things, how the ECB narrates things, BOJ narrates things. In the earlier days, there was certain mystification where Alan Greenspan would say that, hey, I want to leave you people guessing. And now Bernanke believes that monetary policy is 98% communication and only 2% action. So we have seen a sea change in the world of central banking, in the world, the way they communicate. And furthermore, economists and central bankers have not understood that Meb and Justin are two very different people. If I put them in front of two computers in two different rooms and I tell them this is what the Fed said, this is what the ECB said, 
this is what Apple said and Google said, they may not always come up with the same conclusions. I've played that out with traders sitting next to each other. So messaging is important, but also understanding who receives the message is important. There's a couple of things wrapped in there I want to explore. The first is, I was laughing because we had a guest on our podcast as you're talking about consumers who had a great quote. He's like, look, if you're born in the US, you come out of the womb a Disney consumer. <laughs> He's like, you immediately start consuming everything Disney from the age of zero on up. But one of the biggest sea changes we've seen that you talk a lot about you know, is aging. And particularly, there's a large chunk of really old farts that are becoming almost an entirely new part of the way that we have to think about the future. Maybe talk a little bit about that and what kind of effect that's going to have uh, going forward. That's an excellent point. And this is a very concrete example of where academics and people like me, until I looked at things very carefully, got things absolutely wrong. So the orthodoxy of macroeconomics, actuarial science, and insurance policies is to take the lifespan of an individual and divide it into three phases. And this is what the academic gurus of the 50s and 60s, the Sam Wilsons, the Modigliani's, and the Markowitzes did. So they said zero to 15, we are young non-workers. We are largely in schools. They were modeling the world in the 50s and 60s. 16 to 64, we are working age. And 65 plus, we are retiree. So when I started looking at demographics far more closely, I said, hey, Let's ask myself a question, which I should be able to answer as a macro finance professor. The question is, Mev says, Amlan, you retire at 65. And Justin says, Amlan, I think you're going to die at 85. Let's assume both of you are right. How much money do I need for 20 years post-retirement? Most people can't answer that question, although we think we can, because no one can predict, including the gurus in the Fed and Nobel laureates, what inflation will be next 20 years, what health care costs will be next 20 years, what asset returns will be next 20 years, the equity premium, the bond yields, and where will we retire? Do I retire in Calgary, Illinois, or do I retire in Chicago? Do I retire in Pella, Iowa, or do I retire in New York City? The costs of living are different. The job opportunities are different, etc. So I discovered very late because I'm not very smart. And like Peter Drucker, I drank the Kool-Aid that everyone gave me as a finance macro academic. Somebody pointed out to me in 2007, a doctor, that I was blatantly wrong and a statistical geek who doesn't understand the real world. Why? Because an 80-year-old in Netherlands cost the government something more than 79% more than a 65-year-old in terms of healthcare costs. In Switzerland, it's more than 90%. In US, it's more than double. So putting all retirees in one category, 65 till the time they die, is a big fallacy because the 80-year-olds are the very old people. Their wealth, their consumption, their retirement, their outlook is very different than 65-year-olds. Furthermore, the 80-plus, who I call the very old, are the fastest-growing age group in the world, fastest. They are growing at rates which are four, five, six times the rate of the average population growth. So I'll start off with Japan as an example. In 1970, Japan roughly had something like 46% debt to GDP. Its 80-plus population was 1% of the total population. Today, when its debt to GDP is more than 50%, its 80-plus population is more than seven times. I easily translate this to a country in deep, deep trouble in Europe called Italy. 
When I started doing demographics, Italy used to be the fourth or fifth oldest European country. Today, it's the oldest European country. And Italy faces a very, very big debt problem in EU28 with one of the highest debt burdens, but also it's the oldest country. Italy's populism comes from demographic features, and we wrote a paper on this saying that Italian demographics underlines low growth, debt instability, and populism. So why do we see this? Highest youth unemployment rates in Europe in the last 30 years now belong to Italy. They used to belong to Spain just after the global financial crisis. Second, Italy has a big gender bias, male versus female labor force participation rates. Third, Italians, although healthy, are retiring earlier than their retirement ages. This puts an enormous burden on their public debt and the biggest reason for growth of public debt in Europe is the growth of the 65 plus, but more pertinently and more particularly, the growth of the 80 plus. In Europe, roughly 79 to 82% of taxes go on pensions, healthcare, and long-term care. But it's not just a European problem. This is also a problem in US. Last month, I was in DC where I was speaking to your pensions experts and speaking at conferences as well as people who are supposed to bail out a lot of companies which may be in trouble in terms of pensions. And I argued to them that the present value deficit of Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, according to Larry Kotlikoff, who's one of the gurus in terms of generational accounting and has been on the Council of Economic Advisors three times. He's written a book, which is a must read for every American. It's called The Coming Generational Storm. He's written many other books, too. And $210 trillion is the present value deficit of Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. That give or take something like $5 trillion. How do Americans get rid of that? To get rid of it, solutions can be very radical. One solution could be create a lot of inflation. And that would be very inimical to the older generation. Old people lose out if you create inflation, their benefits go down. Second could be that you put an enormous burden on the smaller young generation, and that would be increasing taxes. My argument is simpler. It's I say, take it, and I learned this again from a client because I'm not smart enough. Take 210 trillion or 220 trillion and divide it over 100 years. Let four generations share in it so that no one generation suffers that. So I do think the basic problem in the world is we overpromised to older generations, and that is the biggest mistake of corporate governance. People talk about corporate governance without realizing the biggest mistake of corporate governance is making long-term promises. So let's assume you or Justin are my boss, and I come and ask you, what is my salary or compensation package going to be for next year and year after next? You're going to say, are you crazy? I don't know. Are we going to make profits? Are you going to deliver? Are you going to work properly? So if you can't give me a guarantee for next year or year after next, how did all of corporate America, corporate Japan, and corporate Europe make pension promises 20, 30 years into the future? And no one questioned it. No one questioned it because it was an empty pension promise which never came in the money. In the 60s and 70s, most people would die by 65, 70. So you had three, four, five, maximum a decade of post-retirement. Today, you have people who at the age of 70 have more than an 80% probability that they are going to live till 95 in countries such as Italy, Sweden, Japan, Germany, and also parts of the United States which are fairly wealthy.
But U.S. faces a very big problem. It's a problem that Americans really ought to introspect and deal with because it puts America in really a bit of a laughing spot sometimes. America spends or U.S. spends 18% of GDP roughly on health. And the median age of Americans is 38.3 years, roughly eight years lower than Hong Kong and Japan and lower than most of Europe. And largely this is because of things which can be sorted out, which Mr. Bloomberg tried. One is supersizing, another is obesity, third is inefficient healthcare, and fourth is that Americans work too hard. An average American in San Jose or in Santa Monica making $2 million is not happy with the size of their home. Maybe it's a $5 million home. They aspire to a $10 million home. So instead of working 340 days in a year, they go and start working 350 days in a year to drive themselves to an early grave. These are issues that Americans really need to balance prosperity against quality of life. Five million dollar home, Amlin. I was just looking. I tweeted a couple months ago that there's like twenty homes in Los Angeles listed for over fifty million, including eight homes listed for over a one hundred million. So I'm really, really unhappy because <laughs> I'm I'm a rent I'm a renter and I'm nowhere near a hundred million dollar house. Absolutely, and this is a very, very big problem. And I think history books, according to John Taylor at Stanford, will come back and say that. Two economic heroes were financially reckless in giving us a very gold gilt-edged dream and selling it to the average Americans. And many would blame Greenspan and Bernanke for keeping interest rates too low and making an average person like me earning $35,000 a year or $40,000 in Nebraska think that I can really afford a $3 million home. So selling that dream is something that even people like Schiller criticized in a book called Subprime Solution. So we should live within our means, but inequality is at an all-time high. Never before have we seen in America that the top three richest individuals have close to 50% of its private wealth. That wasn't true during the time of the Carnegies, etc. But that's not just in U.S., U.S. is not the most unequal country in the world. The un- most unequal countries in the world are in emerging markets. Number one, Brazil. Number two, India. Number three, China. So you're talking about $100 million home. The most expensive private residence in the world lies in the second most polluted city in the world called Mumbai. And the value of that is $2.1 billion. It's owned by Mr. Ambani. And it's hardly three quarters of a mile away from the second largest slum in Asia. So growing inequality is also something that you see a lot more in emerging markets, not just in developed countries. And this is what ferments populism, you know, when people see that just like some CEOs, uh, some people in society making multiples of thousands or tens of thousands of what the average hardworking American makes, that's when you see some kind of populism, not just in America, it's happening in UK, Brexit, you can see, it's happening in Greece, it's happening in Italy, it's happening also in parts like Germany. And this right-wing movement is not something which is happening without any economic fundamentals. A lot of people claim that these right-wing movements are happening because inequality has worsened because of globalization and international trade. So there's a brilliant book written by somebody who's in a minority, he's my contemporary, called Danny Roderick. 
It's called Tough Talk on Trade, where he says that trade has, and this is echoing also what Joe Stiglitz said in a book called Globalization and Its Discontent, that globalization has served some countries well, like China, India, etc., but it's also disserved lots of rich countries where the average hardworking American in the Midwest or in some factory city has suffered a lot also because of globalization. So has the average German, so has the average Italian. So the backlash is not without its causes. So emerging markets have benefited. The average median, I would say, or the interdecile between the lowest quartile um, the lowest quartile and the third highest quartile. So between 25th percentile and 75th percentile, the middle class and the lower middle class is who have borne the biggest brunt. So that's why there's some sympathy for Mr. Trump to put these tariffs on. So it's not without cause. There's about three big issues, at least, that we've kind of talked about in this whole sort of diagnosis. And I want to talk a little bit about prescriptions. One that you mentioned was and I'm going to touch on all three and then let you roll. The first, you're talking about the, this new age demographic and, you know, is the answer, do we just give everyone who turns 90s, get them to join the Hemlock Society and say, you guys got to move on. This is, <laughs> we need to make, we need to make place for younger people. And then part and parcel, you also mentioned inequality. What's the answer there? Everyone's talking about wealth tax, all these other ideas. And last, of course, is, is politicians and companies promising the world to, employees, whether it's through pensions that are just hugely chronically underfunded. We wrote an old paper called Pension Funds Investing with Their Eyes Closed and Fingers Crossed. So there's a lot of these fractures going on, you know, not just in the US, but around the world. What are some of the things you think that are actually prescriptions that would help alleviate some of these stresses? Is it something that the system just breaks or what uh, What do we do about it? I must do one thing which I forgot to do because the brilliant Justin had highlighted this when I spoke to him yesterday. Please note that these comments are mine and mine only as a free-thinking researcher. They cannot be attributed to State Street or any other institution that I belong to. Okay, So this is a conversation between you and me, and I'm putting, I'm passionate about a better equal world. So I'm kind of... I feel I feel like, Amlan, I think this qualifier means whatever you're getting ready to say is going to be really, really interesting. <laughs> I feel like anytime anyone says, these views are my own, it's just teeing it up for uh, something really interesting. So let's hear it. <laughs> In 2000, we wrote a document which I used to be very ashamed of. It's very radical. And it was, it's the only document, and uh, you have a copy of it. It's a document which has charts going back a million years. It was a policy prescription written along with two of my co-authors when I was in Credit Suisse. It's called the Demographic Manifesto. How should countries solve the aging problem of a growing mass of old people to be supported by a shrinking mass of young people? And we came up with, I wasn't as wise as I am, hopefully, through two decades of doing research on demographics, but four prescriptions we came up with. Number one, in a world where people are growing older, we need to abolish retirement age. The retirement age of 65 needs to be consecrated to the trash can or the rubbish bin because 65 was the age determined by Otto von Bismarck in 1892 as, as the age of retirement when life expectancy in Germany was only 46. Most people didn't live until 65. So making a pensions promise out there was akin to me saying, hey, Justin and Meb, I will give you all my wealth once I turn 200. If you're going to wait till when I turn 200, 
that's something the probability and odds on that are very low. So that's the first policy prescription. Banish retirement ages, ask people to work part-time, part-year, part-week, and that would require changes in labor law, legislation, education, skills, training, because I may be an old skilled person, but somebody needs to employ me. So that could be one solution in a world where we are saying we don't have enough workers, people are too old. The second solution is let's be fairer towards women. Women are 50% or more of the population or right about near 50%. In most of the G20, women are better educated than men at high school and college levels. Yet there's a big labor force participation gap in the top six countries ranging from 20% in Japan to roughly about 9% in France. US, UK are about 10, 12%. And we also pay women lower. So the second prescription was with the use of technology, allow women to better balance work life with home life. Because the argument that women should stay at home because they have kids, they don't have kids. Let's assume that a woman graduates at age 22 from undergrad. They don't have kids for entire 45 years that they really need to handhold and enable them to go through all the, let's say, travels of life and ensure that they reach the age of 40. In most countries, which are very small and where there are policies, they allow women to better balance work life by home life by creating daycare centers, giving them subsidized childcare, by giving them tax breaks and enabling them to, be, to also transition from when they have two kids to slowly getting back into the workplace. I'm thinking about Nordic countries as well as Netherlands, because fertility rates, number of children per woman in all those countries used to be close to 1.3 or 1.4. Now through proactive and more conducive and I should say more generous policies for equality towards women, female labor force participation rates have come up, while at the same time we are seeing male labor force participation rates have gone down. So somebody could facetiously look at the data and say men are getting lazier, whereas women are working harder to make their burden felt. The third solution is selective immigration. I think most rich countries have been far too liberal on immigration and have taken in immigrants without asking basic questions. When I invite somebody to my home, let's say, who I've met on the subway or tube or at a party, I should be asking a few questions. I should be asking if they come into my house, will they come and break the TV in my house? Will they steal my beer cans and my wine from my fridge or other kinds of things. So it's always imperative for the home country to ask, how many immigrants do we need? With skills, do we need immigrants? Do we need short term? Do we need long term? Can women do the jobs? And I don't think any of the countries have asked those questions in exactly that kind of framework in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Now some have started asking, including the US, but the best Advanced countries on those have been Canada and Australia, which always ask those skill-based questions. And the last prescription I give is, you don't need to bring in people into your country as immigrants if you do not have the wherewithal or you think that they will cause havoc or they will live in ghettos or they will, may not contribute enough because different countries have different policies for that. You could have for non-core activities, ship your job over to some country like India or Colombia or Poland or Hungary, where there are processing centers which are looking at the x-rays and scans of Hope Heart Institute in Seattle or let's say Mayo Clinic in US 
or one of those other big hospitals like Mass General. So you could outsource those kind of activities. So those were four of our solutions. They are very radical, but I believe they are still applicable and different countries need to do different mixes of those policies because even countries like Japan are opening up to immigration. How many countries in the world, if I went to the Nordics or UK, would I see that the dean of one of the biggest universities is a black person, unthinkable in Japan. Sumo wrestling referees are women. Koizumi has enough people in his cabinet which were women, and now Abe-san has also got enough women. So I do think that countries are changing, but the big problem is a political problem. There are too many old people and they vote a lot. Young people don't vote, so the voting power is all with the gray-haired people who are voting to have their Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, sacrosanct while they may have retired at 63 and they live till 90 or 95. Who's going to pay for it? A smaller, younger generation. Their taxes will go up and we are also not promising them the same type of jobs as earlier. So the younger generation is facing a bit of a backlash where they have to look after older generations and also possibly pay higher taxes for the baby boom generation and those who are older. Talk to me a little bit about, I mean, by the way, those are far too sensible suggestions for, <laughs> for most of our politicians to adopt, but they make sense. There's a couple other topics I want to talk about. Briefly, we'll talk about some, some investment concepts. One to me is in the economics profession, so somebody who's been both on the academic side and the practitioner side for a while. One of the big surprises to me that you look around the world today and there's a lot of discussion about it is the realization that there's a large part of the world that has negative yielding sovereign bonds. And from an economics idea, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about that. Do you think about that at all? Could the U.S. ever go negative? Will we? What's the what's the whole? Because uh, to me, that's probably one of the bigger surprises I've seen over the past uh, 10 years. Absolutely. And you've taken me back to my first point. We live in a very abnormal world. Classical economics never had to deal with interest rates, which are negative. There was a Bank of England spokesperson who gave a lecture recently and said that in the G10 countries, 87% of the bonds are negative in real terms. The traditional models of asset allocation, derivatives, or asset pricing, all were based on positive term structures where the treasury bill was probably at 2%, real rates sometimes were 4, 5, 6%, and nominal rates were 8, 9% sometimes. But those days are gone. Today in a world where interest rates are negative, I call it an abnormality because interest rates in a perfect equilibrium sense should be related to the marginal productivity of capital. Capital in an economic sense, there are four factors labor, capital, entrepreneurship, and land. So the price of land is rent, price of labor is wages, price of entrepreneurship is profits, price of capital is considered interest rate. So what does this say? This says that when Justin, and I go back to Adam Smith and Keynes and traditional economics, when Justin borrows, let's say $100 from Meb, he doesn't come and give him a $100 bill, which is torn and absolutely decrepit, which MEV would need to go into a particular branch of the Fed to exchange. 
So rather than giving a, a positive interest rate, you're giving a note which is going to cost somebody an opportunity in terms of their time. So that's like giving a negative interest rate on a loan. So negative interest rate on a loan or negative interest rates are something very unnatural. Most asset pricing models, you know why long-term capital failed? Because long-term capital in all their models only thought about positive inflation, positive interest rates, etc. If you take negative interest rates and you take negative prices, a lot of the economic models explode because they don't converge. So mathematically, a lot of the constructs that we built on pricing have been of a world where interest rates are positive. If interest rates are negative, then in an asset allocation sense, no one should be putting money towards bonds which are yielding negative interest rates. They could put in towards a safe asset, which used to be a treasury bill, with maximum zero return. But negative means I, I give you money and you come and punch me in the face and I suffer for lending you money. So in this kind of an environment, the notion of fixed income or government bonds needs to expand and fixed income should include bonds which are like emerging markets, which are like high yield, which are like corporate bonds, which are like infrastructure bonds, because negative real interest rate should not be even allowed in the admissible investment opportunity set. And this takes me to one of my biggest mistakes that we as finance, finance people made. So in the 60s, 70s, 80s, when real interest rates were 3, 4, 5% on long bonds, which are 10-year, 20-year, 15-year bonds, we built a basic theory and a paradigm where we said long-dated bonds are better matches for long-dated liabilities. And those long-dated bonds were giving you positive real returns. Today, when they're giving you negative real returns, I say, do not partake or invest in those long-dated bonds. Invest in bonds which are giving you positive yields, like corporate bonds, high yield infrastructure, but those things inherently are more risky, and therefore you will need to do better risk management with those kind of things. And we saw what happened with CDOs, CLOs, etc. I used to work in an investment bank, which was one of the largest in credit derivatives in the world. So I've seen from very close how the credit derivatives market developed and the subprime market developed and what happened to it. So on asset allocation, I claim we need to move away from a world where we had only three pillars, public equities, government bonds, and cash. That is what Sharp, Capem, Modigliani's asset allocation models, Markowitz's mean variance model, et cetera, were based on. Today, we need to move away from those and embrace alternatives such as hedge funds, commodities, real estate, infrastructure, private equity, because those new asset classes or new ways of investing give us positive returns. They are riskier, so we need to do better risk management. The trick out there is we don't have very good data and history on these new asset classes compared to the traditional asset classes. So that's where the science and the art of asset allocation mix. So one has to make calculated calls on how do you take uh, real estate, private equity, hedge fund with shorter histories and mix them up with government bonds, private public equities, and cash. And on this, there's a brilliant book which every asset allocator should buy to try to understand how history of asset returns works. And it's called Triumph of the Optimist. So it 
another title could be stocks, bonds, bills and inflation across 17 countries for more than 112 years, written by Dimson, Marsh and Staunton. And every year, Credit Suisse comes up with an update because after they wrote the book, they partnered with Credit Suisse to do annual updates. What that shows is that the equity premium in U.S., which every country took as sacrosanct because U.S. had better data, better finance, better investments, and better finance knowledge compared to the rest of the countries. Today, the equity premium of U.S. cannot be used as a proxy by Australian investors, Nordic investors, or Belgian investors. Yet, when I entered the profession in the 80s, only U.S. had the best data, and those were on the Chicago crisp tapes, and everyone used them. Now, other countries have developed good databases, and the bond yields, the equity premium, the stock returns are very different when you go from Germany to France to Italy. And they are very different when you go from U.S. to Canada. So when you're looking at asset allocation on a global basis, you have to ask yourself, what type of an investor do we need to serve? What type of a portfolio do we need to hold? And is there a home country bus? You just gave my normal speech that I've been giving the last few months. That's actually my my favorite investing book. We had Professor Dimson on the podcast a while back. And I tell all the listeners, I say, you should buy this book. It's expensive. It's like a hundred bucks. So I say you can go get it from the library or go to the your old employer's credit suisses. They do an annual update, Global Investment Returns Yearbook. And we'll post show note links to this. But if you want an entire MBA in investing, reading the last 10 years of updates is probably probably the the best thing you could do as a series of, of pro level. I learned probably more from that book and series than probably any other list of publications. Absolutely, Meb. And what I'm saying is we need to upgrade today. And pardon my using an MBA analogy, the books of Graham and Dodd and the Sharp books, etc., which came out in the 60s and 70s, or even some bits of it in the 80s. It's like NBA of the time when Larry Bird and Hakeem Olajuwon and Magic Johnson played. Today, we are in a world where you've got Kobe Bryant and the new Mr. Durant and etc. in the world, and they are playing at a level which is absolutely unfathomable, whether you look at it in terms of technology or investment. So we really need to understand the history of investment. And it's a book which I'm not recommending only because they are friends of mine. I use it in my first asset allocation lecture, whether it be for MBAs or PhDs. The, a similar kind of a book, which is a companion book, you could look at is Stocks for the Long Run, but that only paints the stock picture, which is by Jeremy Siegel. It's interesting because we talk in the U.S. where we say, as you look around the world, U.S. has, I mean, you almost call it a high yield market at, at two and whatever percent. But even then with, with U.S. stocks, we believe price to return probably lower than they have historically. We talked recently, Schroeder's puts out a yearly publication, but it says the same thing as everyone else, where they say that investors expect over 10% returns. <laughs> and, it's, and it's a global phenomenon. And you know all the pension funds expect 8%. So even if it's 8% or 10%, but the opportunity set is giving you around three, it's either setting up the case for a lot of disappointment for a lot of people in pension funds, or you got to really start to think outside the box of traditional like you mentioned, the CAPM, just basic assets, because otherwise, or you can just be happy with your 2% returns and move on. But it creates a situation that's probably not tenable for most investors. No, and you can see that in US states. You make a brilliant point out there, Mick. 
because look at U.S. state pension plans, whether it be state of Georgia, state of Illinois, state of Rhode Island, or California, where you people are. Most states take their liabilities and they're discounting it. Earlier, they used to discount it at 8%. Now they thump their chest when they've adjusted the discount rate from 8% to 7.25%. And I told them, when is the last time you ever in a single year made 7.25%? Then how come you're discounting your liabilities? So states are allowed to cheat on their liabilities. I do think they need to be a bit more honest with the public and say, gone are the days where we could aspire to give you 7 8%. We give you 3%, that's good. But let me also turn it the other way around. I am one of the biggest fans of people who've had 30, 40 year histories of great bond performance, legends like Bill Gross and Alan Howard. If they are finding it very difficult in a world of low interest rates to make money, what does that say for sub-average folks like me? It's not gonna be easy. And we should understand that they made money during a period where interest rates were very high. Let me give you another example. If I, why aren't banks lending more money? Because if interest rates are so low, where do they make money? Because they are being told you need to be cautious about lending money to young people and young people need the most money. Old people aren't going to engage with you at low interest rates. So low interest rates are the basic anathema or the curse of investment because you are asking banks to keep interest rates very low. And with low interest rates, my analogy is, it's as if you're telling somebody, buy a, low, um, buy a can or a carton of Tropicana, which used to cost $5. Now you say, please go and sell it in for a quarter. Even if the cost of production be 20 cents, no one wants to sell it at a quarter. Similarly with banks, if you tell them, hey, keep interest rates this low. Where do banks make money? If interest rates are very low, there's very low return to entrepreneurial capital too, to risk-taking. So if we want to reward risk-taking, idea is you borrow at 3%, you have conviction in your project, you get returns of 8-10% in your project, return on 3%, some interest rate, let's say pay 3.5% and you net 4.5% and go and sleep happy. That's the way the capitalistic world used to work very well in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. I would be remiss if I didn't talk about productivity growth all over the world falling. And the reason for labor productivity growth falling is that as we get old, our productivity growth falls. The highest productivity growth belongs to young people. And to get high GDP growth, my answer in China, India, and rest of the world is employ more young people and employ more women. So if we along increase labor productivity growth by employing more young people, more women, and by using technology efficiently, we will create more growth, which will have good spillovers to employ both young and old people. And it is a myth to say that old people take away young people's jobs because my challenge to all of America is can anyone do Mr. Alan Greenspan or the job of Mr. Bernanke or the job of Larry Summers today? And the answer to that is no 20 or 25 or 30 year old can do it. Likewise, none of those three names I've mentioned can do the job of a 25 year old in a McDonald's or a Target or in a Best Buy. So if that be the case, I don't think 
old people necessarily take away young people's jobs. And that is also borne out by research from a pensions think tank, which I highly recommend every American subscribe to or those who can sponsor should sponsor. It is outstanding. It's called Center for Retirement Research in Boston College. As we look around the world today, you're getting ready to hop on another flight. You're in London, heading where? Do you say Middle East, then Asia? I'm going to Kenya for a central banking fintech conference. And guess what? This is an Afro-Asian fintech conference. Fintech leader of the world is a country called Singapore. And their central bank organizes an annual conference, which you should go and attend. It's every November. Last year, I attended as a speaker. There were 46,000 people from 115 countries. I was also on a panel with the with the founder of Skype, Yan Talon, who's thinking about technology to solve a lot of the problems of 10, 25 years into the future. So from Singapore, the learning, Africa wants to learn and use fintech because in Africa, a lot of these countries like Kenya, Ghana, Angola, South Africa, you can do. They are very, very advanced in terms of payment systems on phones, even in rural parts. So they want to use fintech as a basic breakthrough or a disruptor in terms of avoiding the inequality gaps. And this can be a leveler which gets young and old, men versus women, advantage versus disadvantage together. So the panel I'm speaking at is how does fintech help people in terms of micro pensions, savings, and allow for better social impact in poor countries and what lessons can we learn from countries like Singapore and countries like Malaysia and India in terms of pensions for the African continent? Well, you know, in Africa is interesting because it's like the exact opposite of much of the developed world as far as demographics. I think some of these countries, if you look at the, the population distribution, is just so, so young. So I want to give you something very spectacular about Africa, which I might forget. And there was a rock star called Bob Geldof. When I gave a one-hour talk, he said, you didn't mention Africa. And I said, well, I've written a paper on can Africa attain its demographic dividend? And the demographic dividend is a term which is misunderstood by most investors and politicians. Everyone tends to use it, and it is core to emerging market growth. The demographic dividend is that when rural countries industrialized, and this happened in Asia and Latin America, to the likes of Singapore, Korea, Malaysia, and few others, where when countries industrialize, men and women move from rural to urban areas, they educate them better, better educated kids and a smaller population leads to higher GDP growth, but smaller population, that is GDP per capita growth. How does industrialization and stages of growth lead to higher GDP per capita growth? The impact of demographics to higher GDP per capita growth is called demographic dividend. Note it is not GDP growth, it's GDP per capita, that is living standards growth. So I wrote a paper, why did Latin America not gain the demographic dividend yet, Asia gained it, and the answer to that was inequality, corruption, poor health, and crime. So people ask me, can Africa get the demographic dividend? And to that, I wrote a paper where I said there are only two things that are in the way of Africa becoming the next Asia or even better, and number one is health. Niger and Malawi, the opposite end of the spectrum of the largest, lived, longest lived countries, Hong Kong and Japan, 
have median age one third of Hong Kong and Japan at 15.2 years and 15.3 years. So a lot of people in those countries, because of political instability, coups, fighting between tribes, etc., the average male dies off by 25. And therefore, we need political stability, better quality of life, rule of law and order. That's the most important thing. And the second thing is we need better health. The biggest killer in Africa is not HIV AIDS. It's waterborne diseases between the ages of zero to two, where because of poor uh, typhoid, cholera, malaria, and those other kinds of things, infant mortality rates are high. So people think that if you have, and again, Meb, in your construction, I saw least to what convention does, and you equated Africa's youth to demographics. Remember, youth is not about demographics. I repeat, demographics is not about age alone. It is about other features beyond age also. Gender affects consumption and work. So does education. So does family background. So does where you grow up. So age is just one statistic as a consumer or worker. So I go and tell the governments of India, China, Africa, just because you have millions of young people, that does not automatically engender a demographic dividend. To get a demographic dividend, you need progress in terms of policies on education, health, labor, political institutions, democracy, all coming together. However, I will caveat it by saying, that sometimes in the poorest of countries, democracy is not the best functioning. When you're hungriest, that's not the time that you need to tell somebody when I'm on the starvation queue that Amlan, you need to recycle something. It's after I've managed to have a glass of water, drink some clean, breathe some clean air, and I have a belly full of food that I can think about those things. So we need to create jobs and healthy workers Educated workers will lead to a demographic dividend, but just workers, 400 million Indians and 600 million young Chinese does not guarantee a demographic dividend if they are unhealthy, unemployable, sick, or if they don't have jobs to look forward to. There's a lot of food for thought in there. Amlan, as much as I want to keep you for another hour or two, we get to start winding this down because we got Nadal Federer on. Who's your, who's your prediction, by the way? Who do, you, who do you think takes it today? If it goes to five sets, Nadal takes it because he's got better stamina. But otherwise, I think Federer has always got the edge on grass. If this was played on neutral courts, then it's difficult to predict. Nadal is supreme on clay courts. I think on grass, if Federer gets the first two the sets, then Nadal can't come back. That's a good example. I mean, Federer, he should have forced retirement by now. He's an, he's an old fart in this demographics. We, uh, we, we, he's, still, uh, he's still whipping everybody. Yeah, but look at it. That's why it's a good note to end on. Health is the most important asset that you have. I have personal examples of friends who are worth more than 100 million, but they've had three bypasses. Their oxygen capacity is 40% of a normal average person of their age. So then you can't enjoy life. And I think Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic are supreme because they are taking care of their health, diet, in ways that John McEnroe and people like uh, Borg and others, even heroes like Pete Sampras, didn't never manage to take care of. Yeah. Well, it's interesting to talk about Federer, too, because the biggest thing he's mentioned over the past few years is he actually 
has uh, amped up the amount of rest he takes. It's not killing himself on the circuit, but takes a little more rest. He's, he's an old man. A couple more things and we'll, get, we'll let you go. First, you mentioned a lot of great resources and listeners will link to those in the podcast notes for books and papers and ideas. Anything else that's been either particularly influential or anything that's been on your shelf as you're on the airplane reading or thinking about that you thought has been really interesting in the past? Let's hear it. There's a great book which was released in Milken, and it was released by somebody who was the political guru of Bill Clinton. However, he decided to ditch Hillary Clinton somewhere halfway through her campaign, and he's called the king of consumer service. His name is Mark Penn. He coined the term hockey mom, soccer mom, Luddites, etc. So he's brought out a new book called Micro Trend Squared, and if you can internalize Micro Trend Squared. And I recommend everyone buy that book because that would be the biggest insight I can give you on stock picking other than giving you quant models, which I knew or know a bit, but I don't do regularly. It's a fascinating read into changing society. And it goes hand in hand with a more technical book. So if you want to be pedantic, scholastic, and more technical, read a book written by the guru of international affairs. Kissinger calls him unparalleled. He's no longer alive. Sam Huntington wrote tremendous two books, Clash of Civilizations, predicting the trade war, predicting China, etc., in the 80s. But the second book on the American identity that he wrote is fascinating reading called Who Are We? How is the average person in Sacramento different than the average person in San Francisco or in Chicago? And how the American identity has evolved over time. Those are, I would say, one is international, another is understanding society. And if we have to do good investments, you don't just need good models. You need the gut feel of the Warren Buffett or the intuition of the Bill Grosses of the world. As you look back over your career, and I don't know how relevant this is, but I'd love to hear if there's anything that comes to mind as on a personal basis that's been your most memorable investment? It could be good, it could be bad, it could be stocks, it could be something else. Anything over the past few decades that's been a a great investment? My three most important calls were one in PIMCO the day U.S. Treasury said no more 30-year bond issuance. I said U.S. will come back and do 30-year bond issuance in 2001. Long bond yields will go from 4 to 3 to 2. My second most memorable call, which turned out to be right, was in 2006 saying Greece will fail because Greece is like GM, Chrysler, and Ford multiplied by 50. And my third most important call was saying that youth unemployment will create the Arab Spring. And now I'm warning about China and India having very high youth unemployment. But on a personal basis, I'm most proud of giving advice on a question asked by one of the richest people in Germany, who's a household name and uh, multi-multi-billionaire on what can you tell me which country should I invest in and I gave him two countries which I believe worked very well for him. What didn't work for me also I must be honest and tell you is sometimes you get taken to a pension fund in deep trouble they need emergency surgery and I'm a person who's kind of like a good medical professor so I'm not the guy who's going to open up your heart and do cardiovascular surgery so once I was put in a position where a pension fund was in big trouble and I was doing big picture thinking, they didn't need me. That was my worst meeting. What they should have at that time used 
is the best derivative salesperson to help them protect their portfolios. So sometimes big picture people should not be brought when it's a time of crisis. I'm useful when probably you have a bit more thinking space, but I'm always grateful that markets teach us that we are imperfect and a more holistic view and looking at different angles and looking at investments in contrarian ways oftentimes helps because if everyone were to follow the herd, you wouldn't be making money. Amlan, I have had a great time chatting with you today. We could easily go on for a few more hours. Where do people follow you if they want to keep up with your writings, your to-dos, your speeches, all that good stuff? Is there is a way to keep up with all your goings? I'm very controversial, so I'm scared of being misquoted, but I'm on LinkedIn. Other than that, for clients of State Street, they can always ask for a meeting through salespeople like you do or else try to follow. Google me. When I left a credit Suisse after 19 years, I wasn't allowed to take most of my papers, but I found them on sites of universities, central banks, etc. And I'm on LinkedIn, so you can always email me. At best, I'll tell you, I don't have a good answer, and Justin's buddy or Justin has a much better answer. Uh, we, we, we'll, we'll add all these uh, links to the show notes, listeners, so you can check out a bunch of Amlan's papers and videos and books we mentioned, everything in between. Amlan, thanks so much for joining us today. No, thanks a lot. Well, listeners, we'll post all these links to mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. Send us any feedback you got at the mebfabershow.com. Subscribe to the show on any of the platforms, Radio Public, Breaker, iTunes. If you want to start your own podcast, check out Podbean. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. These statements represent personal views of Amlan Roy as a global researcher and not those of State Street. (laughs) 